we should probably talk about summer schedule real quick. Uh, so our services are 8, 15, and 10.45. That's all you need to know. 8, 15, 10.45 um, every week, every year, all the way through. So no special services this summer. Uh, we're not going to one service. The elders uh, looked at all the stats and all that stuff and said, hey, we're going to be consistent on times. So, and we know some of you have a certain service that you like. So, so we'll just keep it at 8, 8.15 and 10.45. Um, uh, Indy 500 weekend, what time are services on Sunday? 10.45. So you come to 8.15, uh, you can probably still make it. Okay, most of the rest of you, I know what you're doing all weekend, so I'll see you for confession and uh, absolution next weekend, all right? So we'll just leave it at that, okay? All right, Pastor, anything you want to add on that? Okay, it's all yours. <laughs> How many were hot in the sanctuary this morning? Yeah, good, okay. I dropped it by three degrees, so it'll be better. Um, we hope. Okay. Did, did you figure out where we were? Bottom line. Okay. Let's see. Let me find that one. Hey, you know, I have a big line right there in my book. So I marked it. The, uh, okay. Let's start with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ and all he has won for us, our salvation, our everlasting life. It is a, a gift from you through him. We give thanks for your Holy Spirit that works in us that, that we may know this gift and trust and have faith in it above all things. For all of this, we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Um, I heard some people say last week they couldn't hear me, so if I start mumbling and talking, just, you know, Pastor, we can't hear you, and I'll either start speaking louder, I'll go turn this box up or something, so, but we'll make it work. Um, so we're looking at a uh, chapter in, this, in the Robert Preuss's book, The Living God. Uh, we had talked last week about, uh, based on my notes, uh, that God is a God that, that walks with us, that comes to his people, he knows us. Uh, we are His temple. He dwells within us uh, through His sacraments and through His Spirit. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Get a cough button. Um, let's see. What else shall we say? Let's just, uh, yeah. He wants us to have no idols. I think that goes without saying. Uh, we, we don't get to see God or, or know God through, uh, in, in his salvific sense, through creation or through the beautiful things he does around us. Uh, we know him in his salvific sense through the work of Christ alone. Um, so all creation speaks of God, and uh, you can know there is a God, but you can't know a saving God in that sense. Um, let's see. So from there, we are down to this bottom line. God's glory is the, and we'll go on from there. God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness, of his absolute majesty. Uh, and his glory fills men's hearts with wonder, fear, confusion, but also with joy, peace, and anticipation. 
The Holy One of Israel is the Redeemer, the Savior, Hebrew Goel of Israel, and His holiness or His holy name finds its basis in His work to save. When Jesus is called Savior or Redeemer in Scripture, when He is called the Holy One of God, when He is said to manifest His glory, then He Himself is declared to be God. Um, the Gospel of John is very explicit in this, in that He and the Father are one. Uh, if you know Him, you know the Father. If you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Uh, that there is no division between what they do. Uh, Jesus is a manifestation of God's work, of His saving work, uh, and, and it's worked through Him. Um, let's see. It is significant that the glory of God in the New Testament is always associated with Christ, the man, either in His birth, His activities, His transfiguration, His ascension, or even His death. Like His holiness, omnipresence, and knowledge previously mentioned, God's omnipotence embraces the whole spectrum of God's attributes and actions. It reveals to us what kind of God He is, a living and personal God, a free God who does what He pleases and who can do anything. And I think this is something that people forget. Uh, in all our modern wisdom, we forget that God can simply do anything he wishes. Uh, when I was a kid and, you know, uh, fascinated with dinosaurs, as all little kids are. And, but my mind, I'm going, but, you know, well, there's no dinosaurs in the Bible. So how do I reconcile this? And uh, in my own mind, I said, well, I suppose God can do anything. He could certainly make a fossil of a dinosaur with food in its belly, undigested, fossilized, and for us to go, Hmm. Wonder how that happened. You know, so just, God just made it that way. When God created the Garden of Eden, He didn't wait for trees to sprout up and just grow like corn. Actually, have you ever planted corn in your yard? Yeah, um, it grows fast. But the trees were just there. You know, like like His joke with Adam. You know, Adam, how old's the tree? Oh, I don't know. Three hundred ten years? No, <laughs> two days. Um, he just made it as he wanted it. And God can do anything in this creation still. And sometimes we see that as medical miracles that, you know, people, well, you got cancer. Oh, no. And the people of God pray. And sometimes it happens. They go back and the doctor says, well, let's look at the PET scan. And nurse, you got the right file. What's going on? And it's gone. I mean, these things do happen. God works in these miraculous ways that we don't understand. But the most miraculous way He works is to give us faith to believe that He works in miraculous ways, basically through the saving work of Christ. Um, but we have to trust that he, can, he is God. He can do anything He wants. Um, God's power embraces His justice, His wrath against sin, His control of all things, His benevolence, and His saving grace. Even his eternity, his omnipotence may well frighten us because of our sins, but it also assures us that he is our God and that he is able to care for us in every way and to save us. God's power is eternal. His eternity is omnipotent. There is an inexorable connection between all the attributes of God. All these attributes, however, we might classify them, ascribed in Scripture to God and his works are really one 
with the divine essence. For as we have seen, God is absolutely one and undivided. There can be no confusion or contradiction between the differences and attributes and works of God. As Scripture tells us that He is just transcendent, good, righteous, immutable, truthful, omniscient in Himself and in all His works and ways. It tells us the truth about God and what He is really like. So who is God? As we have searched the Scriptures to learn what God is like, we have also learned His identity, who He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is to say, he who has revealed himself to be the creator of all things and who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ from eternity is called and is God. He who existed, from, existed with God from eternity and has revealed himself to be the only begotten son of God and savior of the world is, call, is called and is God. He who revealed himself to be the spirit of God proceeding from eternity from the essence of God who came upon the Virgin Mary so that she became pregnant with the Son of the Highest, who anointed the Son of God to his ministry of redemption, and who calls, gathers, and enlightens Christ's church on earth through the word of God, is called, is of God, is called, and is God. <clears throat> and in the beginning, all three are there. The Spirit is hovering over the, the waters and darkness. Um, the word is there, speaking in creation, and God is there, ordering it all. Um, you know, we, we often divide up their work as, as you know, God's work is, is uh, a work of creation. And if you look at the creed, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Boom. God's work is creation. Second article is of Christ and his saving work for men. And the last article is of the Holy Spirit. And it's uh, giving faith and sustaining faith. So we have these three things that God does through these three persons, but it's still all one God. And if you can't wrap your mind around that, like some days I look at it and go, mm, yeah, okay. And other days I still look at it and go, yeah, um, I'm struggling with that part. Um, it, it doesn't match up with what our little finite human minds want to put. There's no box. We can really put this in and make it look pretty. And you'll see me and I, I, you'll see pastors, you won't see me at this point, drawing pictures, you know, here's this and here's this and everything goes this way. And, and, no, no. But, but God does through his persons what he wills. Um, <clears throat> question, pastor? Yes. Um, or question for the, for, the, for the Bible study group. Why are we just now getting to who is God? Why didn't Dr. Preuss start with that question at the beginning of this chapter? Flip back in your book if you've got it. How does, how does Preuss begin this this? chapter that is inserted for us into Marquardt's writing. I'm looking back. So what's the heading there, Pastor? The living God, divided by first section, how do we know God? So he doesn't start with who is God, he starts with how do we know God? What, why? Why do you think that is? I mean, this should inform a little bit perhaps on some of your conversations with agnostics or atheists or just 
those of, of various, uh, various Christian faiths as well. Nothing? Really? We look outside. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. And oh, he's not questioning God. Are we supposed to question God? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being silly. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but how do we know what God says? How does Preuss start his book? See, he doesn't start this book in, in an apologetic fashion as a lot of people do. A lot of people, when they start talking about religion, the first thing they start talking about is who is God. Marquardt and Preuss haven't done that. Preuss started with, I'm just trying to keep you here to recognize where we're going with this book. Preuss started with what? Scripture, Holy Scripture, right? So that's the, that's the foundation. With, without understanding what that is or without faith in what that is, can you, are you ready for this? Can you truly know God apart from his word? And the answer would be no. no. And there are a lot of Christians that would claim that. So it all starts with the word and then even when we get into understanding who God is, it starts off with God revealing His nature, right? Now we'll come to understand who He is. There's still a lot of questions that we have, right, about God, but we know what type of God He is um, because His Word tells us. Okay, that's enough for now. But, but just keep that, I just want you to keep that in mind as we go through the book here because where you start sometimes in your conversations with people, or in your own study of the Bible, will oftentimes determine where you end up. Okay? Good. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Okay. Um, so, here we stand on holy ground. We are confronted with the divine mystery of the Holy Trinity. The absolute unity of the divine essence is affirmed everywhere in Scripture, yet God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, do you find the phrase Holy Trinity anywhere in Scripture? No, it's not. But God is spoken of in such ways as that it's known. Um, you know, from, from the beginning of, of uh, in the Old Testament, um, Israel, the Lord our God, is one, um, one God. But then when you get to the Aaronic blessing, what do you hear? And what do you hear here each Sunday? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. When you hear it, you just think the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all in one. Um, yet God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These identifying names are never used in Scripture uh, metaphorically. They never denote a mere attribute or activity or emanation of God, never a mere relation or force or mode of divine being. They denote always specific, concrete, real, distinct, identifiable individuals, conscious 
persons. The term person in Greek, hypostasis, Latin, persona, as it was used in the early church and to this very day by Christians, is not explicitly found in the Old or New Testaments. But the idea with which Christians have attempted to convey by this term, which was used and defined to combat misunderstanding and heresy, is certainly biblical. According to the Osberg Confession and Magna Carta of the Reformation, the three persons of the Godhead are of the same essence and power, who are also co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the term person, they, the Reformers, used, used the, as the Fathers have used it to signify not a part or quality in another, but that which, subs, which subsists of itself. This is precisely the unsophisticated and clear teaching of Scripture. Everywhere in the Old and New Testament, where the Father or Christ, the Son, or the Holy Spirit is spoken of individually, a conscious, real individual and distinct person is referred to, a person who creates, who wills, who loves, who judges, who has compassion, who comforts, who inspires prophets, etc. <clears throat> this is true also when one person of the Godhead is spoken of in Scripture in relation to another. The relationship of persons is always evident. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you see this even in the, in, uh, the baptism of Jesus. Well, here you have the person of Christ, you have the voice of God speaking and testifying to his Son, and you have a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct, but all there together in the theophany. The personal relationship and thus the personal characteristics of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been revealed most concretely in the ministry of Jesus, God's only Son. The Father and the Holy Spirit are, intimate, are intimately and personally involved in his incarnation, conception, and birth. In his baptism and, anoint, and anointment into his redemptive ministry, in his transfiguration and crucifixion, Jesus obeys a personal act, the will of the Father. He promises and sends a personal act, the Spirit. Through Scripture, only masculine personal pronouns are used to denote Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The personal nature of the Father, Son, and Spirit are most emphatically evidenced in Jesus' discourses in John 14 through 16. He urges his disciples to believe in the Father and in him. If we know him, we know the Father. If we have seen him, we have seen the Father. He is in the Father and the Father in him. In him, the most unique and divine communication and interpretation, uh, interpenetration, but without any confusion of the identity of the persons. The Father sends another, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who abides with the disciples and with his church. The world does not see him or know him, but we know him. He is loved by all who love the Father. The Father sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Jesus, too, sends the Comforter from the Father, and the Comforter testifies to him. The Comforter comes and testifies and leads us into all truth. Now it is persons, individual, intelligent, centers of consciousness, I's, you's, he's, who are spoken of in this discourse of our Lord, not principles, relationships, events, attributes, or modes of being. Um, I think most simply, this, this goes to the fact that we have a very personal God who wants to know us on a very personal level. It's not this, you know, ethereal being that, you know, we want to that we can't understand. He, he acts, he works, he does within his creation. Uh, all the Old Testament records his saving acts and his acts of judgment. Um, and, and then we see 
you know, his acts of, of saving fulfilled with Christ in the New Testament. Um, and even the action of the Spirit uh, in baptism, you know, when we receive the Holy Spirit uh, when we are baptized and made his. So there's definite actions that are done. Um, just as Scripture witnesses to the fact that the names, activities, and attributes ascribed to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indicate that each is a true individual person, so the testimony, testimony of, the, of Scripture teaches that each of the persons is true God. The Son and the Holy Spirit possess the fullness of deity with the Father. <coughs> and, you know, so, someone look at Jesus having become man, well, but he's a man. How does he still have the full deity of the Father? And that's part of his humiliation and setting that aside and not using his full power, um, especially to declare himself. Anytime, anytime he uses power, it's not to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father. Um, when he does miracles, he prays before the Father that the Father be glorified, not himself, that the Father be glorified through him. Um, so it's never of a, he never uses his divine power in a sinful or selfish way. It's always in reverence and honor to his Father. Uh, so, fourth commandment. Um, the, um, let's see, Yeah, the Son and the Holy Spirit possess the fullness of deity with the Father. Divine names are ascribed to Christ, the Son, throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh, Adonai, um, El. In the New Testament, he is called both Lord and God in the absolute sense without any limitations. To him is ascribed the creation of all things. His work of redemption and everything pertaining to it is a work that only Almighty God can carry out. So he simply wasn't a man sent by God to teach us how to live a, a righteous life. He was sent to do it completely for us. He was the only one that could do it because he was God. If you want to come to a religion that says, well, Jesus wasn't God but became a God, well, then you're denying his being with the Father from eternity. And, well, then maybe that becomes our goal like Mormons have where... Well, you're not a God yet, but, you know, work hard and you can become a God. No. Um, so, he's called both Lord and God with absolute sense, without any limitations. To him is ascribed the creation of all things. Um, his work of redemption and everything pertaining to it is a work that only Almighty God can carry out. He is eternal with God and is called the only begotten Son or the only begotten God. His, he possesses all the attributes of God, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Um, <clears throat> this is something that the, uh, you know, I mean, the Greek Orthodox, with all their uh, stuff with, with Theotokos, you know, the mother of God, and, and just this, this uh, the majesty they ascribe to her. But, I mean, just the idea that, that here's Mary, some say a 13, 14-year-old girl, um, walking around with the God of all creation in her belly. I mean, the power of God to do this thing. You want to say, 
you know, God can do anything he wants. Yeah, there's the greatest manifestation of all of it, that he can place himself and his son in creation um, miraculously. No man involved. Just the Holy Spirit saying, you know, let this be. Um, so, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the effulgence of God's glory and the image of his substance. Therefore, he is so to be, he is to be worshipped and believed just as the Father is to be worshipped and believed. Um, the deity of the Holy Spirit is also clear from, from witness of Scripture. All personal characteristics ascribed to him in Scripture, that he proceeds from God, that he is wit that he witnesses, that he gives life, that he comforts, regenerates, forgives, and saves are characters and works of God alone. His very name, Spirit, is ascribed to him in Scripture, suggests deity, and the common adjective holy is an essential attribute only of God. Um, the gifts of the Spirit to the church, such as confession of Christ, prophecy, inspiration, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues, faith, love, unity, hope, baptism, etc., all divine gifts, even as they are personal gifts. Everything pertaining to the Christian spiritual experience has its origin in the Holy Spirit. There would be no church, no faith, no baptism, no forgiveness, no conferral of divine grace, and no enjoyment of salvation apart from the Holy Spirit and His work. Um, I think that goes to our gospel reading from this week, that you know Jesus ascends to heaven and He's gone. And here you have these eyewitnesses, and they die, and they're gone. So who carries this on? God himself, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in his church, to grant us faith to believe these things. That is why it is so important for us to believe that, as the Holy Spirit works, God is graciously and mightily at work with us and in us and for us. Just as it is utterly crucial for us to know and believe that Christ's work of redemption is nothing else but the work of God himself. Luther wrote in the large catechism, for neither you nor I ever knowing anything of Christ or believe, or believe on him and have him for our Lord, except as it is offered to us and granted to our hearts by the Holy Ghost through the preaching of the gospel. The work is finished and accomplished, for Christ by his suffering, death and resurrection, etc., has acquired and gained the treasure for us. But if the work remained concealed so that no one knew of it, then it were in vain and lost." That this treasure therefore might not lie buried, but be appropriated and enjoyed, God has caused the word to go forth and be proclaimed, in which he gives the Holy Ghost to bring this treasure home and apply it to us. Therefore, sanctification is nothing else but bringing us to Christ to receive this good to which of ourselves we could not attain. So, the work of the Holy Spirit is just simply to bring faith in us, to enliven faith in us that, that we can believe. Um, it, uh, I guess to, to those without faith, it's kind of boring work. Well, I, when, when did you come to faith? In, well, I was baptized when I was eight days old. I had a dream about this last night. I don't know what it was. But yeah, you know, I was, I was baptized when I was eight, you know, eight days old or 30 days old and and the Holy Spirit came, and, you know, I had faith in Christ, and, well, that's not very exciting at all. <laughs> you know, just a little water. If it's not that exciting, 
then why do I see people of God who have faith in what the Holy Spirit does stand there like this? They believe it. They have faith in it. They trust it. The Holy Spirit has granted them the ability to believe that it works through the means it gives. Um, what Luther has just said is eminently biblical and of decisive importance. If Christ our Savior is not God, if the Holy Spirit our sanctifier is not God, then there is no atonement, no salvation, no life or death, and no faith or hope for the Christian. Um, yeah. If our, Christ, if our Christ is not God, if he didn't rise from the dead, um, we're miserable. I mean, I guess you could say in a, in a technical sense, maybe we live a little better life than others with a hope, but if our hope is false, and all we've done is live a good life here and been nice to our neighbor and not murdered and not killed in the strictest sense and not stolen from people, um, I guess, you know, maybe we're better off for that. But if, if the truth of the resurrection and life in Christ isn't really there, you know, what, what good is that hope? Um, because this life is just oh so short. And I know you <clears throat> young ones, you don't see that. Life seems like it's very long. Sat here 20 years ago in Bible study, and we were talking about life and aging and, and uh, the wor somehow the value of life. You know, it probably came around life issues. And uh, someone who was in their 30s, well, 70s is a pretty good age. You know, I mean, you know, you know someone to make it to 70, that's enough. <laughs> of course, I'm somewhere about 40 at that time going, oh, I don't know. And now I'm 60 going, 70's not that far off, you know. Um, <clears throat> so there, there's a relativeness to all of those things. Um, don't ask me how I got down that rabbit hole. <clears throat> but, uh, oh yeah, I mean, our life is just so short. And um, the blessing of heaven and eternity, whatever that will be, you know, as we're with Christ. And, and you can imagine heaven, imagine eternity. And we all have some scheme in our mind because we really don't know exactly what heaven is other than eternal bliss with God in Christ's presence, praising Him. Am I doing that holding my five-year-old daughter's hand? Or am I doing it holding my hundred-year-old daughter's hand? Because she lived, I don't know. But we'll be there together, loving one another, in Christ fully. Um, so it's a beautiful thing. I told someone once, I said, you know, some, I've, I've had these different thoughts of what heaven, gee, what would I like heaven to be? And when I was five years old, I wanted to be just forever riding the choo-choo train at Holiday Hill in St. Louis around and around in a circle all day long for as long as I wanted because it seemed like we would go there, you know, I don't know, how often do we go? Once, twice, three times a week, it seemed like bright, shiny diesel train, you get in it, you go to grandma's house, you get in it, and you ride around, it's like, oh, this is going to be what heaven is, I can ride the train all day. And then I was driving to work uh, on an evening down Spring Mill Road, and I saw this dad walking his young girl, curly hair, and she is just like this. And, and you know, picture kind of a day like yesterday, spring, nice birds, and she's just like this. And he's just dragging, and she's just looking at everything, just smiling, just loving it. And I'm going, 
man, to live that moment again. And that maybe heaven is just, I get to choose the moment in time that I want to be and relive an event, relive my wedding, relive the birth of a child, relive one of those days that was just perfect in God's creation. And no matter what joy I could find in that, it's going to be better than I can imagine or you can imagine. And that is our hope in Christ. And that's what sees us through any, any troubles here or any you know, trials that we have in this life, is that constant hope of the resurrection. And to come to believe that you're living that now, that from the moment of your baptism, you're living an eternal life with Christ. You aren't thinking, well, my eternal life's over there afterwards. No, your eternal life is dead, boom, eternal life. It, it's, I use the analogy with the confirmation students, if any of them have ever had surgery. You know, I had no surgery once. And I forget, I was telling the anesthesiologist a joke. Jim, wake up, it's over. I'm like, oh, <laughs> did he laugh? I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, I, really, to die is just absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, our souls in heaven, awaiting the resurrection and, and the rejoining of our bodies, but our death is presence with the Lord immediately. Um, let's see. But is God really three divine persons, or does he only reveal himself to be so? Christian theologians have distinguished, on the one hand, between the eternal works of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the inner relations within the Trinity, and on the other hand, those works which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do in relation to creation and mankind. When we refer to the former, i.e. the Father begets his own Son from eternity, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, it is identical with him, and is the light of light, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, we speak of the imminent Trinity. No. Um, when we refer to the actions or the persons of the Godhead in relation to us, we commonly speak of the economic Trinity. The external inter-Trinitarian works of the Godhead are no less real than his external and sometimes historical works toward his fallen creation. Our one, our one God is triune, three divine persons sharing the one divine essence eminently as well as economically. For as Werner Ellert says, God cannot be anything else than what he has revealed himself to be. If he has revealed himself as three in one, then he is three in one. And this goes back to, who are we to decide what God can and cannot do? Some things we just look at and say, okay, and go on. Um, is the, is, it is significant to note that throughout the history of doctrine, when theologians have denied that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are persons, they have also lost the doctrine of the imminent Trinity, just as surely as when they deny the deity of the three persons. But they have lost more than what they think is just a relic of antiquated medieval metaphysics. They have lost the economic Trinity as well. They have lost God's mighty acts or muddled them beyond recognition. So, when you start saying, well, God can't do that because I can't, how would that work? How could creation happen in six days? How could God become man? How could God speak and create life in a womb without a male human? Um, so, 
well, we lose his, his majesty and the fact that he can do what he says, but they've lost what, uh, what they think is just a relic of, okay. They muddle it. No longer do these theologians believe in a creation of all things, a redemption of the human race, and a sanctification of God's own people, all carried out by the living God himself. And so they have lost God. Um, yeah, it, it's a ploy of the devil. You know, did God say? Can God do? And we desire to come up with a God for ourselves, as based on the front part of the book, you know, we can recognize there is a God, but we want to make one to our own liking that we can form. Yes? Can I share a story from our pastor's conference this week? Yeah. So we were up in uh, uh, Detroit area for our uh, pastor's conference for the English district, and uh, our bishop, you've met him, President uh, Pastor James Jameson Hardy, was sharing the story of a congregation that is attempting to come into the Missouri Synod in the English district. And they're coming out of the, out of the ELCA. And one of the first questions that Bishop Hardy uh, asked them is, uh, you know, why do you want to become Missouri Synod? And the simple answer was, we feel our denomination has lost God. It was just kind of simple and stated and to the point, but, you know, lost God in his word, lost God in, I mean, you can just kind of, and so you see when you, when you, when you start to, you know, when you have some of those challenges that we see in other denominations, all of them can be traced back at some point to some misunderstanding of the Trinity, uh, either how God works among himself in the Godhead or how he is at work in the world and in the church, the economy. So just kind of hang on and think about that. That's another lens you can use to kind of, you know, trace back. Because one, one thing always affects the other. Let's see. And so they have lost God. I am not simply talking here about uh, Socinians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and modern Unitarians of recent generations who call themselves modernists. I am also talking about contemporary theologians who reject the doctrine of the Trinity as unevangelical or unintelligible, or, or for some other reason, who distort or try to rehabilitate the biblical doctrine, or who ignore the doctrine altogether. They have given up on the, on the gospel, which can only be proclaimed in a Trinitarian matrix and setting. For the gospel is nothing else than the proclamation of the external works of the economic trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, think of a church that uh, no longer uses the ancient creeds. They real simply state what we believe of the trinity. And, you know, when you start looking at churches that are deeds, not creeds, and, um, you know, we do all these wonderful things, but they don't believe in God as he is proclaimed in the Bible, in Scripture. The doctrine of God, that is the Trinity, so firmly based on Scripture, is the fundamental article of the Scriptures and of the Christian faith in the sense that all biblical theology ought to be grounded upon this sub, on, upon, should be, ought to be grounded upon and subsumed under this one article. It tells us everything we should know and believe about who God is and what he is like and what he has done. Really, it is all summed up beautifully by Luther in his commentary on the Apostles' Creed in his large catechism. 
And I guess I read this and that will finish us. In these three articles, God himself has revealed and opened to us the most profound depths of his fatherly heart, his sheer unutterable love. He created us for this very purpose, to redeem and sanctify us. Moreover, having bestowed upon us everything in heaven and on earth, he has given us his Son and his Holy Spirit, through whom he brings us to himself. And that is a great point right there. It's his work. He brings us to him. We don't know him any other way. As we explained before, we could never come to recognize the Father's favor and grace were it not for the Lord Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart. Apart from him, we see nothing but an angry and terrible judge. But neither could we know anything of Christ had it not been revealed by the Holy Spirit. These articles of the Creed, therefore, divide and distinguish us Christians from all other people on earth. All who are outside the Christian church, whether heathen, Turks, Jews, or false Christians and hypocrites, even though they believe in and worship only the one true God, nevertheless do not know what his attitude is toward them. They cannot be confident of his love and blessing. Therefore they remain in eternal wrath and damnation, for they do not have the Lord Christ, and besides, they are not illuminated and blessed by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, to know God and to know Jesus of the Bible, but see it wrongly and that, you know, Jesus tells us how we should live our life, and you go into a religion of um, law, keep all his commandments, do all his things, you know, um, and... It's your work. When you take Christ's work out of it, you don't know God and his saving grace. And um, ultimately, that just drives you to, uh, to what? Despair. And, and having a conscience that can't be calmed. That, that is, am I, am I going to live and live eternally or will I be damned? I, I don't know. Have I done enough? And... The thing is, like I said in my sermon, Jesus did not say on the cross, it is started. Now go finish it. He said it's done. And that's really where our faith has to be. Um, I don't know, Pastor McKay, you got anything else in the last five minutes? You probably got 30 minutes worth. I was going to say that's a loaded question, Pastor Green. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think as we prepare for chapter three, if you, if you have the book, uh, either in print or digital, uh, digital, uh, digital uh, edition. Uh, go back and read through it, um, or just gloss it, and, and just just look again, uh, just to reemphasize kind of the layout or the order um, of, of of how we look at at all things spiritual. Uh, starting, of course, with Holy Scripture, and then how God is revealed to us, uh, and because of who God is, and because of His attributes. Uh, we now know who he is, um, and, and now in the next chapter, you're going to hear Preuss come back and talk about the, the incarnation of God, okay? Um, one of the things, I'm a little bit of a systems guy, as you probably figured out by now, but if you go like through the Book of Concord, if you have that in your home, or you can look it up online, bookofconcord.org, and look through the main documents and just kind of see how they're laid out, how they're orderly, right? And all of them were written at different times to address different errors, but you know, you take the Augsburg Confession and how the articles go, where they start and where they end up. Um, I think the formula of Concord, for those of you that are real in-depth into study, is, is probably the most applicable to today's day and time, but we'll save that for another long-winded, boring lecture at some other time. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to thank Matthias for your help.
Thank you, sir. Uh, this has helped him in school, too, because he has uh, gained, um, okay, what are we calling them, hours? Uh, community service hours. Da, 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 da. The little chime that goes with community service. But um, there may be opportunities coming for others, high school age and above, that want to be involved in some uh, tech things around church. I'll just tease you with that. Um, so be thinking of how, what you know and how you might be able to serve in some tech capacity. Um, but thank you for doing this. It's great. Well, Pastor um, Grady, I have one more thing. I had this crazy dream that you were, you were on this, you were the size you are now, but you were on this little bitty tiny choo-choo train going around in a circle. Uh-huh. And you, you couldn't get off and you were screaming like a baby. But yeah. Yeah. I just thought I'd share that with you. Yeah, I probably was, yeah. Uh-huh. Sometimes I feel like I'm on a train I can't get off. It's like, uh-huh. I won't tell you my dream from last night. It was strange. Okay, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you revealed yourself to us, through you as our Father, through the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. And you work through us that we may have saving knowledge of you through your Son and the work he has done. We give thanks that you have chosen us as your people, that we are the new Israel, that we can rejoice and give thanks for the wonderful deeds you have done in saving us through your Son. We give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.